Let me introduce Paul. Paul is a Pharisee. Pharisees are one of the educated intellectual groups in first century Jewish culture, in first century Judean culture. Pharisees are the ones who are very insistent on living out the Torah in your everyday life. So they were very concerned with understanding the Torah in its details to the degree that you're saturated with the law and know how it might apply to all kinds of situations you might encounter in your everyday life. Paul is a Pharisee, and he was among the Judeans who went after these followers of Jesus initially. He at some point made a huge turnaround, and he refers to it himself in his own letters. He believed Jesus appeared to him and tells him that he's now got a mission to actually spread the word of this Jesus, not only in Judea, but to the rest of the Greek and Roman world. He takes this Judean movement that are following Jesus as though he's a Judean Messiah or a Judean prophet and takes this message to Greeks and Romans who don't have a clue much about any of this. That turning point happens somewhere in probably in the 40s CE. So Paul starts going around to different Greek cities in the Roman Empire. He speaks in Greek and most of his audience are speaking in Greek and most of the early followers of Jesus that Paul gets into this whole thing speak Greek. He makes his way in Asia Minor, which is Turkey, and over to Greece. Eventually, he hopes to go all the way to Rome and beyond over to Spain. This guy's got big plans, eh? Letters that he writes are literally letters written from Paul to a community of Jesus followers who he founded. He had passed through, taught about this Judean God and needing to give up worshiping your Roman and Greek gods and to follow this Judean God who sent a son. That whole message, and then he goes away and then he writes letters back trying to help the people that he established as a group following Jesus. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians briefly, just to give you a sense that Paul has an apocalyptic worldview. This is his earliest letter, 1 Thessalonians. Most likely dates to 50 CE or slightly before. So we're about 20 years after the death of Jesus. Paul has already traveled around and already founded a community at Thessalonica in northern Greece, in Macedonia. Here he's writing a letter to them after he's left that community. Look at chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. Here he sort of summarizes the essence of what he teaches people like this at Thessalonica. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us what a welcome we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That threefold little thing there in one sentence basically summarizes the essence of what Paul teaches Greeks who have no clue about any of this to begin with. Give up worshiping your Greek and Roman gods. Give up what Paul calls idols, but what they would call their gods. Serve the Judean God. Wait for that God's son from heaven. That son was raised from the dead, and he's Jesus. And he's the guy that's going to be God's final functionary in delivering us from the final judgment. Later on in the letter, he deals with apocalypticism more fully, but you can already see that it's an apocalyptic message. The wrath is coming. The intervention of God is coming. 
And the son is going to help you out in the whole situation. He's going to save you from the wrath that's coming. There's a series of issues that he deals with in this letter, including his friendship with them, how he likes what they've done, how they're, he's like a father to them. He has all these wonderful things to say about them. It's a very praising sort of letter. At one point later on, though, he raises another issue that has come up that is troubling them. Some of their fellow followers of Jesus have died. They have the impression, people at Thessalonica that are following what Paul taught, had the impression that no one would die before the final intervention of God and that they would be saved before anyone died. They thought the end was near, didn't they? They thought apocalyptically. It was imminent for them. To the point where if someone died, they go, oh, shit, I, what's going to happen to my friend? They might not have said shit, but you know, you know what I'm saying. And so that's what has happened. And then Paul responds like this, but we would not have you ignorant, brothers, concerning those who are asleep, those who are dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So Paul thinks of the idea that Jesus is raised from the dead as the model of what God will do for all those who follow Jesus. A resurrection. We already saw that as a component in the apocalyptic worldview. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, shall be caught up together. So he has the idea of resurrection here. So he's typical of other Judeans in many ways, but he's not typical in thinking Jesus is the end-time functionary who plays some main, major role for God in bringing about the resurrection and the judgment and the wrath and all that. Look at this next phrase, uh, chapter, chapter 5, which continues the thing, where he sort of now, now that he's supposedly comforted them, your friends have died, but don't worry. This is what's going to happen. Even the people that are dead will actually be raised first. But then he goes into expanding his apocalyptic worldview here once he's comforted them. But as to the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves know well, this is what he taught them, in other words, when he was there. You already know it. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people say there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as travail comes upon a woman with child, and there will be no escape. But you are not in darkness, brethren, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Where have we come across the phrase sons of light? Dead Sea Scrolls. In the community rule, the main way of summarizing the dualism of humanity. That is associated with what? The prince of light, the prince of darkness, the angel of light, the angel of darkness. Paul has that same worldview. But the Dead Sea sect didn't have Jesus playing a role in the end time. The Dead Sea sect had expected two messiahs. They expected a priest and a king. They expected also uh, sort of heavenly angels to play a role in God's final intervention. Not this Jesus guy. But Paul has Jesus plugged into this whole framework. But it's the same framework to some degree, isn't it? So here we have an apocalyptic Judean, don't we? who has a role for Jesus as some sort of end-time functionary. And he's now spread this movement out into the Greek world. It's been apocalyptic message he's taught them. It's any moment the end is coming. And that's typical for an apocalyptic thinker. 
So let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28. Here Paul is writing to Christians in another Greek city, that he, and he founded this group as well, but this group has, he has huge problems with these guys. There may be some people in the community that continue to think like Paul does, but it almost sounds like the majority of followers of Jesus at Corinth don't like Paul and don't want to do what he says. And Some of the followers of Jesus at Corinth do not believe there is going to be a resurrection of bodies. It's in that context that more of Paul's apocalyptic worldview and this destruction of the evil powers comes up. And we can't go into the details, but what I want to highlight is this. Look at chapter 15, verses 20 and following. But in fact, Christ, Jesus, has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, he's talking about Adam, by a man, Jesus, has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, there's that term again, parousia is the Greek word. We had that in that Thessalonian passage. It's a consistent way that Paul talks about this return of Jesus. Parousia, coming. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Jesus in a sort of cosmic role, a very angelic sounding Jesus. Emissary of God, Jesus, who's going to play some fundamental role in the final destruction of evil. But what's evil here? Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. It's a warrior sort of imagery here for this cosmic Jesus. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now where have we come across the idea of destroying death? Moat. In Canaanite myth, Baal puts to death death, doesn't he? In the Hebrew Bible, in some of the combat myth passages you read... It was also in connection with the combat myth that there was talk of the destruction of death again in Isaiah. Paul seems to sort of be working in that combat myth you guys are so familiar with and the idea of the destruction of death from its Israelite origins, not from its Ugaritic origins, conceiving of this final intervention of God and Christ's role in it as the destroyer of that power of death. So there's a lot behind this little reference here. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. You might pass over it without realizing how potent that image is for what we've been talking about. So the powers that Christ, as a, the functionary of God, destroys include death, personified in the way that Paul is conceiving it here. But he also just lists every rule, every authority, every power, every cosmic power will be destroyed, and the final one is death. I'd imagine Bellier, who he refers to elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, is included in the powers that will be destroyed. He uses the term Bellier, the same term that the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls use for uh, Satan elsewhere in 1 Corinthians. Verses 54 to 57, look at. Right at the end of his discussion of the resurrection, he sort of comes back to the victory aspect of that battle. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. 
What is he quoting? He's quoting that Isaiah passage. It's one of those passages that has the combat myth in it. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, etc. But this idea of death being a power, a cosmic power, an evil cosmic power that is destroyed by Christ in the end times is central to Paul's thinking here. Let's talk about Paul's combat with his opponents, that whole issue of the discourses of Satan, the discourses of demonizing someone else being used internally with one follower of Jesus attributing demonic association to another follower of Jesus. We're going to see this as a major component in the history of Satan, but we're seeing the first glimpse of it here in the history of Christianity, and it's going to continue throughout the history of Christianity, this internal function of satanic sort of language. Um, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. And even if our message is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. So other people are claiming that Paul's message is inferior to some other message. In their case, the God of this world, oh, there's what I was citing this for. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the likeness of God. He's calling them unbelievers. And he's saying the God of this world. Who's the God of this world? It's a bit obvious to you now, right? It's another way of saying evil personified, Satan, devil, bellier. Why would an apocalyptic Judean have the phrase the God of this world? Because the same reason that the Gospel of Luke has the story of the devil offering Jesus a role to rule over this world. He's the God of this world. We're living in the dominion of Belial. But here the idea is your opponents are being fooled by Satan, by the God of this world. You're now starting to see a Judean Paul calling other Judeans who follow Jesus. Their message is twisted by the God of this world. That those people are in league with the God of this world. That therefore their destiny is where the God of this world ends up when God finally intervenes to set up his kingdom. Look further ahead where you have that spelled out more fully. Chapter 11, verses 1 to 15. Here, once again, Paul is combating an alternate way of understanding Jesus that is being promulgated by other followers of Jesus. It's Paul's message versus someone else's message. Both have the message of Jesus, as they, they, they would express it that way, but they're not compatible with one another. He calls them super apostles. So the people Paul doesn't like, who are followers of Jesus, who have a different take on things at Corinth, and he's trying to mock them in a variety of ways and also get more of the Corinthian Christians to be on his side and not on the side of these other followers of Jesus who are teaching something different. So it's in this context. Let's read the whole passage and then unpack it a bit because this is a very clear case of the internal use of the rhetoric of Satan, right? So Paul takes a very sarcastic approach to his trying to combat these super apostles. He says, you guys think you're pretty smart? Well, I'm the smartest. And then he goes on about talking about how he's so wonderful and all that. And then he's boasting in a sort of sarcastic manner. And then he says, I've been foolish. And that's, that's where we start in chapter 11. I've been foolish. You've driven me to it. Is what he sort of says. I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me. I feel a divine jealousy for you followers of Jesus at Corinth. 
for I betrothed you to Christ. I was the one that actually came in the first place and told you anything about this son that the Judean God sent. I first betrothed you to Christ to present you as a pure bride to her one husband. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, this is going to be crucial later on, by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I'll come back to that in a second. For if someone comes and preaches another Jesus than the one we, in other words, Paul preached, he's calling someone else's message another Jesus. Or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different good news or different message from the one you accepted from us, you submit to it readily enough. I think that I'm not in the least inferior to the super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not in knowledge. In every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Did I commit a sin in abasing myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's message without cost to you? Turns out the other apostles are likely accepting fees. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order, not, in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in want, I did not burden anyone. For my needs were supplied by brothers who were, came from Macedonia. probably talking about the Thessalonican Christians. Go further down now. Verse 12 and following. And what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is not strange if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Here he's explicitly identifying his fellow Christian people he has disagreements with, with Satan and as servants of Satan. This is going to be a tradition within Christianity subsequent to this. It already was there in Judean context too, before ever this happened. But this is one of the two main uses of the rhetoric of Satan within the history of Satan that we're seeing the beginnings of here. Just like Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, my opponents disguise themselves. And they'll end up just like Satan does. Let's go back to that earlier little reference that I didn't want you to not notice. I'm not quite sure how much to make of it. But in the context of him thinking in his mind in this, when he's dictating to whoever writes things for him, and he already has in his mind this satanic association he's going to make, and that maybe Paul already knows of the tradition that associates the serpent in Genesis with Satan. Already knowing about this notion of thinking of the serpent in the Genesis narrative as evil personified, as Satan. When you read the ant life of Adam and Eve, we'll see the full-blown association of that. The life of Adam and Eve comes from the 2nd and 3rd century CE, but contains material that dates before that. And some even suggest it comes, the material in it comes from about the 1st century BCE. So it's plausible to suggest that Paul already knows of the connection between Satan and the story of the serpent in, in Genesis. But the main point I had with this was this whole internal use of rhetoric of Satan to call your enemies Satan or call them on the side of Satan. So last week we were talking about Satan's role in early Christianity and I began to introduce that idea 
that there are two main rhetorical and social functions of discourses about Satan. That Satan functions in battles within a group, internally, and that Satan functions within the rhetoric of battles between a group and outsiders. We began to see the internal struggles last time, where we saw one follower of Jesus accusing another follower of Jesus of being satanic or being demonic or being on the side of Satan. And we used Paul's example where he's uh, attacking some of his opponents at Corinth in Greece as an example of these internal struggles and the use of Satan language for that. So we began with the internal struggles and then we're going to go on to some uh, clear example of the use of satanic language for external enemies. Let's move on to another example of the internal use of the rhetoric of Satan. So the epistles of John are a writing that come from the late 1st century or possibly into the 2nd century, so around 90 to 110 CE. Most scholars would place this, we don't know for sure. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John that ended up in the New Testament is what we're talking about here. And scholars talk about it as the Johannine epistles. So in the Johannine epistles, we have some evidence of what had happened that led the writer of these documents to write. And he's dealing with a very specific incident that happened. In essence, let me summarize what the incident is, and then we'll see how the rhetoric of Satan comes to play a role in it. There was one community. What happened within that community is there was an actual schism. They were in one group, they, there was a schism, and they broke off from one another. But it's actually one type of early Christianity we're talking about, Johannine Christianity, which doesn't get along with some other forms of Christianity, fine. But what we're talking about is internal struggles within that type of followers of Jesus. You have the broader picture now? So in the letters, the author here is on one side of that schism. And he's talking to the people who have sided with him. And he's arguing against the people who have left the people who have left the community and gone out on their own to have their own community because they can no longer get along on some point that's a bit unclear. Take a look at 1 John. The passage I want to read to you first is this one right here. There's quite a few that deal with the schism and then the language of Satan and Antichrist. This is the first occurrence of the word Antichrist, historically speaking. First evidence we have of anyone using the word Antichrist is from this, chronologically speaking, is around 90 to 110 CE when this is written. I want to look especially at chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. Turn to that of 1 John. So the first letter attributed to this figure, elder, the elder John, is the author of it. So look at uh, chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. So already by the time you get to chapter 2, verses 18 and following, there's already talk that shows you how this author thinks of the evil one, he has the idea of the existence of the evil one, personified evil in some way. And this evil one being opposed to God and the language of light and darkness to express belonging to the evil one or not belonging to the evil one. So already by the time you get to this part of the letter, you have that language. Then you have this first occurrence of Antichrist, historically speaking, ever. The Antichrist is going to become intimately tied in with the history of Satan subsequently, and it's already beginning here. Children, it is the last hour, this author writes to the Christians that are on his side. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, 
an opponent of Christ. So now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might be plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all know. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and know that no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Remember the word Christ is the Greek word for anointed one or Messiah. This is the Antichrist, the anti-Messiah. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and the Father. Okay. It's unclear why the schism happened, but it's obviously something about how one group liked to describe the Father, they're describing God as a Father, and how they describe Jesus as the Son. And another group with another, some segment of the same group, having different ways of describing Father and Son. And the schism has arisen over something to do with that. What's important to us is we already see this follower of Jesus, the Elder John who writes this, categorizing other followers of Jesus who used to belong to his own group as antichrists. And the notion that there is almost, he's using language almost like people would know what antichrist singular is. Even though this is our first incident of it historically, this author's talking like the community he's writing to already have that concept. It's not brand new. It's not the first time he's telling them about that. They already have the concept of, in the end times, some sort of opponent of Christ coming. And this is going to develop hugely in the Middle Ages to become like central to the story of Satan and to the story of God's final intervention and obliteration of evil and all that. The idea that there will be a figure who is an antichrist to come just before the end times. And in the Middle Ages, if you see artistic depictions of it as a sort of sinister looking Jesus. But here we're at the very beginning of the story. None of that's all built up yet. But they have some concept, though, of a figure coming at the end times, just before the end, who will be in league with Satan, who is opposed to Christ, an antichrist. And they already have that concept, and then this author is saying, there's also a whole lot of antichrists. Turns out it's the people who used to belong to our group. They're in league with Satan. He's labeling his, the group that left. Remember, they went out from us. He's labeling them antichrists. Turn forward now to see how all this links up quite clearly with Satan in the mind of this author. He doesn't explicitly say anything about Satan there, except maybe the liar might be an indication of personified evil figure there in the back of this author's mind. Later on, that's common to call uh, Satan the liar. Look at chapter 3, verses 4 and following. Everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that Jesus appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who does right is righteous, as he is righteous. He who commits sin is of the devil. Diabolos. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
No one born of God commits sin, for God's nature abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, it may be seen who are the children of God. Obviously, we are, is what he's going to say, and not the people who left. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not do right is not of God, nor he who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, and not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. It's going to align Cain as a prototypical human who is in line with Satan. And there are legends that Cain was the offspring of Eve through the devil that we're going to get into today, um, which might be in the background there, too. But what's clear here is using that sort of rhetoric of evil to condemn people within your communities. So that's another illustration of the internal use of satanic sort of discourse.